Now my goal in the next few weeks is to land on Matthew 21, 1 through 11 on Palm Sunday. Because that's uh, the triumphal entry. So we're only, uh, after today we'll be 19 and 20, and then we'll hit 21, and that should fall right on Palm Sunday, uh, as God would have us. And then on Easter Sunday, we won't have Sunday school. Remember, that's when we our new uh, auditorium opens. Okay? So we are in Matthew 18, and we're going to cover verses 15 through 35. 15 through 35. And let me remind you what we covered last week. We said that a person who causes a new follower of Jesus to stumble and leave the church is in danger of judgment. You cause one of these little ones to stumble and depart from the faith, you are in danger of judgment. And Jesus said, remember that God seeks and saves the lost. So what are you doing driving them away? We should be seeking and saving the lost as well. Now today we come to a section which is typically known as church discipline. Very controversial, sticky issue, rarely practiced in churches. This section, beginning in verse 15, deals with what do you do when someone sins against you? How do you handle that situation? And Jesus gives us a step-by-step procedure to handle uh, confrontations between people. And here's how I'm going to divide this section. I'm going to divide it into three parts. Verses 15 through 20, we're going to call it instructions. Jesus gives instructions, 15 through 20. Then verses 21 and 22, he gives a clarification. A clarification. And then verses 23 through 35, he gives an illustration. So we have instruction, clarification, illustration. Okay, so let's look at verse 15. Moreover, and this links it back to the previous passage, What happens if you sin and cause somebody to stumble? Now let's take a reverse situation. Moreover, and here's the issue. If your brother sins against you, that's the issue. If your brother sins against you, what do you do? Okay, step number one. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now notice uh, several things. Let's make a few observations. Number one. It's the person who is sinned against. That's the victim who must take the initiative. We often think that the person who sins should take the initiative and come and say, I'm sorry I offended you. If you wait for that, you may never get an apology. Sinners take a long time to come to their senses. So here Jesus says that We are the ones who are to take the initiative, and I might add, the sooner the better. He doesn't say that. But the reason you should do it sooner than better is that if you don't handle this issue quickly, you're going to start seething over this situation. 
you're going to become angry and it's going to affect you psychologically. It's not going to affect them. Hey, they just tend to get away with it all the time. And so uh, you need to handle this thing and you need to do it quickly. The second thing you'll notice is that you're to do it privately. Notice it says you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You don't go telling other people about what this person has done to you. You don't go gossiping about that person or complaining about that person or bad-mouthing that person. You go to them and you tell them, that person, privately what he's done to offend you. And by the way, this doesn't have to be confrontational. This is not a confrontation. You go and you say, hey, Joe, you know the other day when you did this? You know, that really, whatever, offended me or hurt me or cut me to the heart. or That just wasn't true. And you know, I just need to clear the air and just tell you, that really offended me. You know, you don't go and say, hey, you know what you did to me? You rotten bum, you do No. That's not the purpose. The purpose is reconciliation. You see that? Look at how it goes on in verse 15. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now look at this. If he hears you, that means if he uh, heeds. If he hears you and repents and he says, I'm sorry, he realizes what he's done. He's broken over it. Then you have gained your brother. So what has happened is that your goal is reconciliation. The sin causes a rift between two people. It causes a division between people. And by the way, left in that situation, it will cause a rift or a division within the church. And this is why the issue must be dealt with. One, if you have a person who is sinned against you and you don't deal with it, you see, you, don't, you start avoiding that person. You ever notice that? And then you tell your friends and then sides are taken. And when sides are taken, there's a division within the church. So the goal is not revenge. The goal is not to expose the person's sin. The goal is to solve the problem and do it quickly, do it privately before it causes a division. Now what happens if the person doesn't listen to you? They say, hanging on your beak. That's what I used to say to people. So people come up there and oh, go hanging on your beak. You know what that means? I'm not listening to you. You're more at fault than I was. I start justifying something, right? So uh, what happens if they don't repent? Well, then Jesus gives us the next step. And that next step is found in verse 16. But if he will not hear you, gets defensive, gets huffy, you know, then what do you do? Take with you one or two more. Take with you one or two more. Now, this is called an intervention. Heard that term before? Remember when Gerald Ford and the first family had to meet with Betty Ford? Remember that? They had an intervention. They said, Mom, you're an alcoholic. You need help. And we're not here to condemn you. We love you. That's why we've come together. And so it was the Ford family and Gerald Ford, the president of the United States. This was happening in the White House. We don't want you to ruin your life. 
We don't want you to, to ruin our family. We don't want to have a division in our family. We want to help you. And so, now you know, President Ford had talked to his wife a lot of times before that individually, one-on-one. He said, Betty, you know, we had the secretary of uh, so-and-so country with us, or minister of so-and-so country, and you know, you got a little tipsy. And she said, oh, just mind your own business. I can handle my liquor. Much as you can. Yeah, but you're tripping over your So guess what he does? He brings in the family. This is what you're to do. You're bringing the family of God. How many? Just a couple. See? You have an intervention. Uh, not for the purpose of condemning the person. It's the same principle. It's the purpose. The purpose is to resolve the situation. Look what it says in verse 16 that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You don't want this to become uh, your word against their word. So you bring in a couple more people who can listen, who know about this, maybe don't know about the situation, but can hear the facts of the situation, and uh, try to resolve the situation before it becomes an issue for the whole church. Now what happens if they rebuff you again? They tell all three of you to mind your own business. Okay. Well, what's the next step? Look at the next step, verse 17. If he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. Tell it to the ecclesia. is the Greek word. It can mean the synagogue. It can mean the church. It doesn't have to be just the church situation, but uh, the group that you're in, in this case I would say it would be the synagogue and then also the church, uh, you take it to the to the church. What does it mean you tell it to the church? Does it mean you have an open meeting publicly and you just tell everybody? Or does it mean you bring in the leadership of the church? Uh, it doesn't tell you how to do that. But we know that it's going to involve more than the two or three people. See? And so you get the church involved. What For what purpose? To convince the person to repent, uh, be reconciled to the person who's offended, sinned against, uh, so there will be no division in the church. Now look what it says in verse 17. But if he refuses even to hear the church, now you treat him as a heathen and as a tax collector. That's step number four. That's a nice way of saying, uh, put the person out. Uh, treat them like the plague. There are eight different verses in the New Testament that deal with church discipline, what to do with a person who continues to sin. You, One of them that you're very familiar with, uh, uh, a little leaven leavens the what? The whole lump. Purge out the leaven. Get rid of that person. So there is a time when you are to put people out. Now notice, last week we talked about how you can offend a person and cause them to stumble, and they leave the church. Shouldn't do that. But there are times when you do need to put people out of the church. Now remember, in Bible times, people worshipped and had ministry uh, around the meal. The early church met for about a three or four hour meal. And they ate a meal and then they had a, a time of ministry. 
And to put the person out meant they didn't eat with the church. That's why Paul says, I think it's over in Timothy, he says, uh, and with such a one, no, don't even eat. Don't allow them to come in and worship with you and eat this big meal that we eat. They are out. Why? Because these people have not kept their baptismal vows. They've pledged their allegiance to King Jesus. They've chosen not to live for King Jesus, but to live for themselves and the world. They're like a traitor to a country who says, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America for all that it stands for, and then guess what they do? They go to another government, and they spy on their own country. That's a traitor. That's the worst kind of sin you can commit as a citizen of any country. And that's what you have here. You have basically a fifth column, uh, one of Satan's agents who have entered the church, a wolf in sheep's clothing, passing themselves off as a brother. And, uh, but they're proving themselves not that way. They would rather divide the church than repent and solve the problems. And so it says, if they do not hear the church, even if they do not hear the church, will not hear one, will not hear two, will not hear three, four, step, put them out. This is a willful person who refuses to be responsible for their own sin. And so what you do is you put them out. How about they said, I repent, oh, I'm sorry. Then what do you do? You forgive them. They're no longer responsible. They're reconciled, you see. So when you look in verse 18, look what Jesus says. Truly, truly, or assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now those, those terms, binding and loosing, are legal terms. Terms of the courtroom uh, that Jesus uses. To bind someone means to find them guilty of what they've done. And they will pay a price. To loose means to forgive them. They are acquitted of their sin or the quad crime, and you forgive them. Uh, notice where you do that. You do it on earth, but where does God do it? He does it in heaven. The church is God's representative on earth. If you say, I forgive you, then guess what? God forgives you of your sin. If you say, I hold you responsible for your sin, you're guilty, you've not repented, God holds you responsible, or holds them responsible for their sin. Because the church is God's representative. Then look at verse 19. He says again, this is just going to be a repeat. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Uh, that word anything is a, a Greek word which also is a, a legal word. It means uh, anything that deals with a judicial matter. So, uh, if you ask God to forgive them, they'll be forgiven. If you ask God to hold them responsible, they'll be held responsible. Uh, this is not a verse, by the way, that talks about prayer. A lot of times we'll just quote that verse right out of context. I've heard... Uh, 
Some charismatic uh, preachers use this verse out of context. If you agree, if two of you will agree on anything, touching anything, look at that, concerning anything they ask, it'll be done by your Father in heaven. Hey, will you agree with me, brother? <laughs> Let's agree. Let's agree. So, oh, I agree with you. Okay. And sort of God's under this obligation. Not talking about that. What's the issue here? Discipline. Issues forgiveness. <laughs> the issue is holding them responsibility. Hey, you, two of you guys get together and you say, he's not repentant. He's responsible for his sin. God holds him responsible. So uh, that's what it's talking about. How about the two or three witnesses disagree? Well, obviously there's a problem there. <laughs> so this is still dealing with church discipline. So you need to make sure that you don't use this verse in the wrong way. Okay. So look what it says. Look <clears> at <throat> verse 19. Give you the reason. Verse 20, rather, gives you the reason. For, here's the reason, because where two or three are gathered in my name, this is done in the name of Christ, there I am in the midst. It's like when you judge the person forgiven, God forgives, because he's right there. He's right there with you. He's not some God who's far away. I'm right there in the midst. So, again, it's dealing with this issue of judging sin. God is a witness to the whole situation. He agrees with your decision. Again, there's another verse that's taken out of context. A verse that preachers use for small attendance on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night meeting. Well, we only had a few in our Bible study last week. We found two or three are gathered. There God is in the midst. It's not about that. What's the issue? Discipline, sin, forgiveness. This is why he'll forgive, because he's right there in the middle. He sees the whole thing. He's a witness. He's the judge. It's not just you. You're representing him. And that's what this is all about. Okay? Now, that's part one. That's Those are the instructions. That's how you're to handle things. Is that how we normally handle things in most churches? I don't think so. Now, Peter takes this to heart, and now we come to part two. And we're going to call this clarification. Okay? So part two, clarification. Then Peter came to him and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I need a clarification on this. How many times do we go through this process? How about he sins next week? Then the following week, he said, in verse 21. Up to seven times? Now, Peter, being the genius that he is, <clears throat> um, picks a number that is it far exceeds anything that a Jewish rabbi ever said. Because the rabbis said, you should forgive a person up to three times. But if they sin against you the fourth time, you should not forgive them. Three strikes and you're out. So Peter comes up, knowing that Jesus is always goes a little beyond that, says, uh, how many times we should, should we forgive? Seven? <laughs> Can't you see him doing something like that? <clears throat> and Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. 
That's 490 times, but you know, who's counting after about the 129th time? So when he says 70 times 7, he doesn't mean that in a literal sense. He means what? No matter how many times. An unlimited amount of times. The same phrase is used back in Genesis 4. It means unlimited times. Uh, how many times should I forgive? Well, let me ask you. How many times did you forgive your kids? Seven? Up to seven? You say that little breath. When you did something wrong, that's ah, the eighth time. No, you forgive 70 times seven, unlimited amount of time. Uh, offenses against you are going to occur throughout your lifetime. You're not even going to be able to, to account for all of them. So you must forgive over and over and over and over again. Now remember, it's always assumed that the sinner has repented of the sin. That he's heard you. That you it always means that you have gone to the person one-on-one, that you've done that. That you've taken the initiative. And that the person has heard you and they have repented. So there's the clarification. How many times? Well, as many times as the text. Okay. Now we come to the illustration. <clears throat> Jesus wants to drive this point home. So he's going to give you an illustration. And he's going to tell a parable to illustrate. Look at verse 23. Therefore, see, in light of everything that's happened, that's been said, therefore, in light of these instructions, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So this parable is about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And in this parable we have a king, and that king represents God. And in verse 23 we have servants, and that represents church members. And there are accounts that need to be settled, and they're going to represent our sins. Okay? Now, this is a fictitious story. It's never happened. Jesus is coming up with a story to drive home a point about how you should forgive sins and how you should handle situations. So look what he says in verse 24. This is scene number one. There are going to be three scenes in this parable. Look at scene number one. And when he had begun, this is the king, to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 Talents. Now, if I told you that the entire tax bill, yearly tax bill, for the whole region of Palestine from north to south and every city in between, was 800 talents a year, and this guy knows how many? 10,000 personally. He would owe more than the entire tax bill of an entire country. So, obviously, this is a hyperbole. It means this guy owed so much money to the king, he couldn't pay it back in ten lifetimes. In fact, the word 10,000 there is not really 10,000. It's not a number. It's just, in the Greek, it's myriads. Myriads upon myriads. It's the highest numerical designation in the entire Greek language. Myriads of myriads of angels. You've heard that from the book of Revelation? It just means a number that is beyond comprehension. 
Although, I just saw last night on the news that there was this woman, former mayor, out in California, I forget what, what city it was, San Diego or something, that uh, stole money out of a fund, a government fund, and blew it all on gambling in Las Vegas. <clears throat> it came to billions of dollars. A trust fund, some sort of fund that somebody set up for that city, billions of dollars. And she was on the news, she's trying to get out of it, you know, said I was having a, you know, I'm bipolar, she said something like that, you know, whatever. <clears throat> but, you know, she couldn't pay that off in a hundred lifetimes. And uh, that's the kind of debt this guy has, okay? So this is a hyperbole, okay? So look what it said. He owed 10,000 pounds, which means how much? More than he could ever pay off. Look at verse 25. But he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had, that the payment should be made. Okay? Your life is a payment. Your whole family. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, meaning repeatedly falling down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He was suddenly merciful. He looked at this poor man groveling on the ground, begging that his family not be sold into slavery. He was moved with compassion and he released him, loosed him, and forgave the debt. Scene number one. Scene number two. <clears throat> verse 28. But the servant, it should say, and the servant fell down and said, oh, 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 but I'll serve you the rest of my life. Oh. He doesn't do that. Not even appreciative. But the servant went out, verse 28, found one of his fellow servants who owed him 300 denarii. Laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. Now, 300 denarii is three months' salary. Three months' wages. Uh, far cry from, you know, $120 trillion. Pittance in comparison. Pay me what you grab me by the throat. And look at verse 29. So the fellow servant fell down, groveled in the dust. At his feet begged him, saying, Have patience. I will pay you all. Now, that seems to sound familiar. But, look at verse 30, he would not. And he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So there's scene number two. Scene number three. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, 
They were very grieved. And they came and they told their master all that had been done. Then the master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And the answer to that question is, yes, that's exactly what you should have done, right? <clears throat> so, do you see the picture? Here's a picture of a king representing God, and he, what? Forgives. Here's a servant representing church member, and he, what? Doesn't forgive. He doesn't emulate the king. And that's the point of the story. We must act like God. We must mimic God because we're God's children. We must forgive unconditionally because God's forgiven us. How many times has He forgiven you, by the way? Seven? Up to seven? Or has He forgiven you 70 times seven? And even more. So, myriads of times he's forgiven us, and guess what? Therefore, we should forgive others. That's the illustration. Now, look at verse 34. And the master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him, which means what? Never. So, he is tortured forever. This is a picture of the judgment where we can never pay back the sin debt that we owe a holy and a righteous and an eternal God. That's the judgment that a church member faces. Showing that this person was not a child of God, but just a church member. Because if you're a child of God, you act like your father. See? And that's the teaching that Jesus has given. As God loses, so we're to lose. And if we don't, we face the judgment. So here's the bottom line. <clears throat> so, Jesus says, my heavenly Father also will do to you, means torture you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. So, our Heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive from your heart your brother your trespasses. Sort of sounds like the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. To the same degree that we forgive others. If we don't forgive others, then we're not forgiven. If we don't show compassion on others, we're not given compassion. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. But how about if you're not merciful? How about if you don't show compassion? And it means being merciful and showing compassion means you forgive the person from where? Does it say there in verse 35? From his what? His heart. It's not, it's talking about you're really sincere when you forgive the person. You actually do reconcile it. You don't, you don't say, ah, that's okay, you don't bother me again. It's not that. 
That'd just be doing it with your lips. It's from your heart. It's an act of mercy. Act of mercy means it's not deserved. That person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Really, if they sin, they deserve to be what? Punished. But you're not going to do that. You're not going to hold them responsible. You're not going to bind them to that sin. You're going to loose them from that sin. That's what mercy is. And we do that from the heart, because blessed are the merciful. So, Jesus now has given instructions. These are instructions to his disciples and to Peter. That's how they're to act. They are instructions for Matthew's readers who are reading this 80 years later. That's how that church is to act. I guess Matthew probably chose that story to include in his gospel because the other gospel writers don't close the story. I guess he included this story in his gospel because his church members needed to hear this. And it's Jesus' instructions for us. And I guess we need to hear this. We need to hear it on one-on-one relationships. We need to hear it in this place. We need to hear it as a church. So this is instructions for all of us. That's what this chapter is about. In this chapter, chapter 18... This chapter shows us there are three categories of judgment. If you cause a little one to stumble, it's going to be judgment number one. If you cause a little one to stumble, stumble, it would be better for you that a millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest part of the sea than to face God's judgment. The second category of judgment is... If you sin against somebody and you don't repent, and then you don't repent the second two and three people coming, and you don't and you're brought to the church and you don't repent of the church, then you're put out of the church and you're under judgment. That's the second category. And the third category is here that if you don't forgive a person who sinned against you from your heart more than seven times unlimited times, then you will be in danger of judgment yourself. So we have three categories of judgment. This whole chapter is about judgment and how to avoid it and relationships within a church. And hopefully we'll take it apart. Next week we'll pick up the chapter. Lord, we thank you for uh, your instructions, we thank you for the clarification, the illustration that drives the point at home. Now help us, Lord, to be like those who hear, those who heed your word. Help us to obey it. Help us to put this into practice. Help us to keep our accounts with each other short and our accounts with you short. We want to have unity in the church. We don't want to have divisions. We want to truly reflect the unity that's found in the body of Christ. May that be our goal for this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.